Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. We are so happy that you have decided to join us. Hopefully, you will find the next few minutes challenging and refreshing as we consider together how God is asking us to respond to His grace. If you are listening because you are unable to join us at our physical location, thank you for keeping in step with us, and we will look forward to seeing you in person next Sunday. If you are joining us from outside of Anchorage, then please drop us a line and let us know where you are listening in from. We would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you are exploring faith for the first time or just trying to figure out what Awaken is about, please don't hesitate to drop us a line and introduce yourself. We welcome any question you might have about life, the Christian faith, or Awaken Church. May God be with you as you listen. We are in Judges Part 6. So if you've missed the first five, of course you can go back and catch them. But today, we're talking about Samson, and so I expect that the sermon will be very strong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I put a lot of things in the message to try to bulk it up. I've been praying all week that the Lord would help you build some spiritual muscle today. (laughs) Well, let's go to Judges chapter 13. Starting in verse 1, it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So they... So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. We're not going to make it very far in the story uh, before I'm going to ask you to focus on something. One word in particular. It starts with the word again. And that's easy to blow past, but if we think about that just a little bit, um, you've probably heard this word before. This word has probably been introduced into your thought life by the enemy. Because one of the things the enemy tries to get us to believe is that if we keep messing things up again and again and again, then eventually we get to a place where God has had enough with us. He no longer wants to have anything to do with us. So in that moment, after we've failed in some way, we've said something to somebody and we knew immediately that was the wrong thing to say. We knew immediately we wounded them in a way that that seems irreparable. Or whatever the case might be, the first word you might hear coming into your mind is, again? Really? Are you really that messed up? Are you really that much of a failure again? So that's one way to look at the word again, but there's another way to look at the word again. Because what the stories of Judges tell us is that again and again and again, God raised up a rescuer. Again and again and again, God redeemed. And we see that God is a 
redeeming God. And we know that God is perfect. Like his tolerance for sin is actually an absolute zero. Zero tolerance for sin. But at the same time, we see that God relentlessly pursues us with his grace. One of the critiques you often hear about God, like for example, if you were to Google critiques of God, one of the things you would very likely find very early on is the fact that God brings wrath, that there is consequence, that there is punishment, that God doles out wrath sometimes in a very violent way. That would be a critique, but you would not hear a critique of God that said, God is just too loving. There's just too much grace. God relentlessly pursues me with his love. Nobody critiques that part of God. We have chosen to stand in awe of that rather than allow God's very rare wrath to keep us from experiencing, from enjoying his love and his mercy, from seeing his grace, from knowing his pursuit of us. God is a redeeming God. This is his character. This is what he desires to do, to redeem us. Verse 2, it says, In those days a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah, His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. Now, that's not the angel giving her prenatal advice. There's a reason that these... Instructions are given and why they're so specific. Verse 5, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So mothers, beware. It may just be that God is raising up a new generation for a particular purpose. I'm guessing all of us, whether we're mothers or not, have heard something along these lines that, oh man, I thought, you know, life was kind of, kind of bad, like immoral or, or whatever thing you're referring to, like when I was growing up, but man, the kids that are coming up, they're going to have it really, really tough, Right? We say that kind of thing a lot. My parents said it. I'm sure their parents said it. I'm sure their parents said it. But what we're not saying is, guess what God is doing? God is doing the work of redemption. God is doing this thing right now where he's raising up a generation to be fit for the age that they will live in. He is raising up people of courage, people of honor, people of integrity, people who are servant-hearted, people who 
will change this world in dramatic ways. People who will testify to the greatness of God in a very dark world. That's what God is doing. God is not intimidated by the changes in cultural tides. God is not intimidated by the changes in political spectrum. God just, what does he do? He just raises up a new generation. He just raises up a new generation. People fit for that time. People who are able to work in that culture. People who are able to change their world. God is a redeeming God. God has this habit throughout Scripture, actually, of sending children into the womb for a specific purpose in the world. What is this Nazarite vow thing about? It has nothing to do with Nazareth. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was from Nazareth, uh, which means like... um, to watch. And so the idea is people think Nazareth was like on a hill somewhere. They're not exactly sure where Nazareth is. They think they know where the original Nazareth is, but, you know, up on a hill. So it was like a a viewing area, a place to sort of watch for the enemy, figure out what was going on, maybe signal other areas. Nothing to do with Nazarite. Nazarite is this idea of being set apart. I think it literally means to be consecrated to God, to consecrate yourself to God, to be set apart for, for him. Numbers chapter 6 uh, invites the people of Israel to, if they so choose, into this Nazarite vow. So if you were a Jewish person and you were following God, and let's say you experienced something really incredible. And it moved you. I mean, let's say you were there when the Red Sea was parted, for example. And you just thought, wow, that was incredible. And I know God has given given us sort of this baseline of stuff to do, but I would like to do something like additionally. I want to worship God with absolute consecration. And so God lays out this way. There are different uh, prescriptions uh, in order to be able to do this. One was that uh, you would not cut your hair for the length of time that you took this vow. You could take this vow for a day, or you could take this vow for three years, or, or whatever length of time you set. And this is going to be a time where you set yourself apart. You consecrated yourself fully and absolutely to God. At the end of that time, uh, you would offer uh, various sacrifices to sort of celebrate the end of your vow. Uh, one of the things you would do is you would cut your hair off and you would offer that as sacrifice. So obviously, you know, I've done this a few times and just keep doing it. But, uh, you know, there was this idea that you have consecrated yourself fully to God. There's even this uh, prescription in there in, in, in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 9, where uh, God says, hey, There might be this scenario where you've taken the Nazarite vow. I'm paraphrasing just so you know. God doesn't speak quite this conversationally. But, you know, maybe you've taken the Nazarite vow and you're sitting next to your your aging grandfather. And maybe he keels over while you're sitting there. And so this is a problem for a Nazarite because one of the things a Nazarite can't do is touch dead things. 
And so God gives this prescription, like, hey, I, I get it, I understand, that was out of your control, it wasn't your choice. So you, you just need to go and you need to start over. Uh, you haven't broken your vow to me, we're just going to start over, right? And this is, this is a reminder of the character of God who is not concerned with our failure necessarily, he's concerned with our return to him. He's concerned with us doing the next right thing, Right? God is not adding up like good moral things that we've done in our account. All right, the scriptures are clear. God doesn't look at our, at our, our past deeds. Like we don't, we don't build up an account with God. So sorry to burst your bubble if you had one. But we don't build up an account with God, right? He's concerned about where our heart is at the moment. If we turn to him, if we continuously turn to him, if we keep turning to him, if we keep doing the next right thing, if we do something wrong, if we turn to him immediately, right? That's what God's concerned about. The New Testament equivalent of the Nazarite vow would be found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Right? You're responding to God's grace, and you're consecrating yourself fully. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And so the idea is you are just so in awe of who God is and of what he has done that you have decided to just pour yourself fully into this thing. Right? It's this invitation where God is saying, hey, there's a little bit more, actually. If you surrender to me just a little bit more, if you trust me just a little bit further, guess what? There's more of me. I have more for you. There's more there. I'm endless. Just keep trusting me and trust me a little bit more and consecrate a little bit more of your life to me and see what I will do. See that there's more of me, right? Um, we reference the verse a lot where, where God says, taste and see that the Lord is, good. Lord is good. And this is God's invitation to taste more and more and more. The meal just keeps on going. Uh, if you're curious, Acts chapter 21, 18 through 24 uh, there is this instance where the Apostle Paul is returning from his missionary trips, and he's come back to Jerusalem, and they're managing like this political uh, situation because Paul is integrating Gentiles into the Christian faith, and he's also trying to get the, the Jews to sort of come a little bit out of Judaism and not get so caught up on the rituals. And so they're having this tension, and so when Paul comes back, uh, let's see, they, they decide to do this thing. It's like a, it's a way for Paul to signal to the Jewish believers in, at, or in uh, Jerusalem that he's not throwing Judaism under the bus. So in verse 23, it says, here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. These are Christian Jewish men. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, praying for them to have their heads... or." Yeah, praying for them to have their heads ritually, sorry, I keep saying praying, paying for them. So they're, they're asking Paul to pay the barber so that these gentlemen can 
finish their Nazarite vow, right? Uh, he says, then everyone will know that the rumors are all false, not you yourself observe the Jewish laws. But there, here's an example of Christian Jewish men taking the Nazarite vow and fulfilling it, whatever it was that they consecrated to God. And then Paul is coming in and helping them complete the ritual at the temple. So it's just an interesting interaction between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the story of Samson. The reason I'm bringing all that up is because I just want you to think a little bit about is it possible that, that there's more? Like in my spiritual life, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm doing the thing. I'm going along. I'm in the routine. Maybe I'm just sort of doing the Christian baseline. Maybe God is inviting you to, to do more, to consecrate more, to trust more, to step in a little bit further because God wants to show you something, right? God's not trying, God's not up there dreaming of ways to remove pleasure from your life, Okay? God wants you to experience more of him. That's the goal, because he knows that's the best experience for us, because he knows that's what we've been created for. And so he asks us to just give a little more, trust a little more, consecrate a little bit more to him, because he can do incredible things with our lives. Chapter 14 Judges chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One day when Samson was in, in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. <laughs> this is a problem throughout Scripture, actually. Uh, when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Notice how Samson doesn't ask for permission. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you have a strong-willed child at home. <laughs> Samson would be the ultimate strong-willed child. Get her for me. Could you imagine trying to parent Samson? Uh, I remember when Tanner was about two or three, our middle child, and uh, he had figured out how to use all of his muscles in a very coordinated way. Like some children, they don't get coordinated that quick, and they don't, they don't understand that they have strength, but Tanner had it figured out. And he decided that he did not want to get into the car seat. He no longer had good vibes when it came to car seats. And so it became a problem. Not for me. I mean, you can see my amazing physique. And so I was able to just place him in the car seat. Not a big deal. But for Heidi... It was a different story. Heidi's like, uh, she's a gentle spirit. Right? If you're going to go into a bar fight, don't call Heidi. <laughs> she is not the one you want to have with her or with you. So she was trying to figure this out, getting very frustrated. Tanner was winning the day. And she was you know, in tears about this, really struggling. And so uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't just say, hey, um, you know, Man up. I couldn't say that to her. Uh, so we went out and we talked about it a little bit. And, you know, I wasn't going to be able to be there every time you needed to be in the car seat. So uh, we developed a technique where she could take her knee and, you know, 
decrease him. You guys getting this? And so, you know, she was able to, to win the battle. But did you imagine with Samson, right? I mean, this is, we're talking, you know, a little literally like Incredible Hulk here. And as a teenager, we think maybe Samson's around 16 or so at this time. Go get her. Um, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? So I'm guessing at this point, Samson's parents feel like failures. Um, they were, I, I'm imagining that they were fantastic parents. I mean, they were visited by an angel, given this child from God. Don't you think that they were diligent parents as a result? We see nothing about Samson breaking the Nazarite vow up to this point. And so they were, they were very careful to watch over him and to make sure that things were done according to the way that God had asked them to do them. And then Samson does this slap in the face thing, right? He's going to go outside the tribe, outside of the Israelites, and whoosh, forget you. Forget your advice. Whoosh. You guys like my sound effects? Forget your wisdom. Whoosh. Right? So very likely Samson's parents are feeling like failures at this point, which is a pretty common thing as a parent. <laughs> Even if you're better than some other parents, like obviously, um, you still feel like a failure in, in different areas. And parents really struggle to get it right, because we tend to judge it on the children, right? And that's a problem, because children become adults, and they do their own thing, regardless of parenting, in a lot of cases. So, here's, I think, a really important verse. Um, <clears throat> Samson retorts, this isn't the part, but he says, get her, get her for me, she looks good to me. <laughs> uh, but verse 4 his father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over, the, over Israel at the time. What they didn't realize was that God was at work. What they forgot is that God was a redeeming God, that God was not surprised by Samson's rebellion. God was not surprised that when he gave a teenager massive strength that the teenager wasn't wise. This did not surprise God. God was already ahead of the game. God was already going to use this to advance his purposes. God already had a plan. God never, like, forgot that he was sovereign, right? And so, for us... We need to remember in our own failures, maybe in the failures of the other peop of people around us that we've tried to influence for good. Maybe we've really poured into somebody, a parent being the greatest example of that, but we've really poured into somebody and, oh, they just go and blow it. It's good for us to remember that the redeeming God is on the throne. The redeeming God is doing the work of redemption even when it appears that the opposite is occurring. Well, 
Marvel is way behind the times. I think it was Marvel that created the Incredible Hulk, right? Way behind the times. That story has already been told and much, much better. In chapter 15, I'll give you one example uh, of one of Samson's exploits. Chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 14. So just leading up to this, Samson's been messing with Philistines. Uh, they are like annoyed at a very high level. They want his head on a platter. Uh, they are done messing with Samson. And so since they are ruling over the area, they demand that the Israelites turn over Samson. The Israelites know that they can't just go and grab Samson and turn him in. They have to ask Samson politely. And Samson says, oh, sure. Yeah, just, you know, tie me up. Just make sure you don't kill me yourself. Like, nobody stab me in the back when I'm not looking, right? And so that's where we pick it up in verse 14. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. The, the enemy often has these moments where they think they've won. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes in his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrist. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed 1,000 Philistines with it. Then he sang a song. You know, I mean, he's, he's maybe 20 years old at this point, right? With the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was named Jawbone Hill. Very creative. Now, the next section I'm going to read you uh, might surprise you, because I'm guessing when I said, hey, we're going to talk about Samson this morning, you probably immediately thought of the Samson and Delilah section of the story. I mean, that's the part they make movies about. Right, I, probably because it has some sex scenes in there, and, and that's more interesting. But that's that's the part everybody thinks about, right? His failures, his downfall. But watch this next section, verse eighteen. Samson was now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord, "You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant." Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi, and Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named the place the spring of the one who cried out. And it is still in Lehi to this day. Um, Samson had this relationship with God, actually. We think often just of Samson just messing it up, right? And we think about sort of ruined potential, don't we? Like Samson was just a beast. I mean, for example, uh, he's in Gaza, uh, which is a good-sized Philistine city. And, uh, I mean, he's there visiting a prostitute, but we won't talk about that. But he's in Gaza, and... They are going to try to kill him and capture him. He gets up in the middle of the night, and he rips the city gate 
like out of its out of its moorings. He just rips it out of the wall and out of the ground. If you're a, like a guy designing a city and you're going to make gates that defend against an enemy, do you think you're going to put some effort into that? Do you think you're going to make them heavy? Do you think you're going to secure them well to the wall? Do you think you're going to secure it well to the ground? Okay, a significant gate. He takes the gates, the post, and the mantle. He just takes the whole thing. And he goes for 40 miles and plants it on top of this hill. So he's a total beast, right? And don't we think about just like unrealized potential? I mean, could you imagine Samson if he had been, if he'd actually stuck with the Nazarite vow? If he'd actually fully consecrated himself completely to God? Do you ever feel that way about yourself? I do all the time. Like, man, I feel like I am not maximizing who God has made me to be. I feel that way a lot. And I'm guessing you do as well. Because I'm guessing the enemy attacks you just like he attacks me. I guess you're, I'm guessing you're just as insecure, at least as insecure as I am. Maybe a little bit more insecure, because at least I'm able to get up here and talk about my insecurity. <laughs> right? But I mean, this is, this is the, way, the way it is, the way we live. But there's incredible, incredible news. Right? Samson has this relationship with God where he knows, where God teaches him that if he cries out to God, God will respond. God will deliver him. God will watch over him. God will do the work of redemption. God is not just going to leave him there thirsty and exhausted. God is not just going to turn him over to the enemy. God is not going to just use him and then let him rot. That's a really important lesson for Samson to know because Samson really screws things up, right? He gets involved with Delilah, and we know the story there. Eventually, she manipulates him into giving the secret to his strength. Eventually, he is captured by the Philistines. His eyes are gouged out, which, you know, I imagine that to be quite painful, but uh, the idea was to make Samson powerful or powerless. So even if he regained his power in some way, he had no eyes. So he would, you know, that would really diminish his abilities. Samson had the option of saying, well, God is done with me. The Philistines have me. My eyes have been gouged out, right? My, my ability to function in the purpose that God has given me has been taken away. My own people, they're not coming after me. They're not coming for me. There's no rescue in sight. He has the option just to die that way. But instead, what does he do? He does the thing that gets him into Hebrews chapter 11. Did you know that? Samson is listed in the hall of faith as one of the heroes of faith. 
this guy who had massive potential and totally screwed it up. He is in the hall of faith. He is one of those in the great cloud of witnesses encouraging us, hoping for us, witnessing to us that God is a redeeming God because at the end of his life, Samson's not an old guy at this point, right? It's the end of his life because of what happened. But he knows that even though his eyes have been gouged out, even though nobody is coming for him to rescue him, he knows that even in the most desperate circumstances that he can cry out to the God who redeems. And so he prays, God, will you give me one more chance? Will you let me have one more opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which I was made? And he places his hands on the foundational pillars at this massive Philistine party house, their seat of government, and he pushes. And God gives him the strength to push an entire building down. Wow. God is a redeeming God. God desires to redeem you and I. And God wants to do it again and again and again and again until we are fully redeemed. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Father, we ask that you would remind us every moment that you're the redeeming God. That when we hear the word again, it would not be from the enemy, but it would be from you. Asking us to return again, to be redeemed again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand. Uh, From 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Have a uh, wonderful week. We'll see you next week, if not before. Thank you again for listening. It is a joy to be able to share God's truth with you. Hopefully you found this teaching helpful to your understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in today's world. And hopefully you are inspired to take a further step of faith. Please let us know how we can be praying for you as you continue your journey. If you live in the Anchorage area, you are welcome to join us any Sunday. And we have an Awaken 101 event every six weeks. And this is also a great way to find out more about our church. Please sign up for that event by going to the events tab at our website, awakenalaska.com, and looking for Awaken 101. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends and we will see you next week.